As with their move to Grafton Terrace a decade earlier, the Marxes were able to move to larger accommodation in 1864 thanks to multiple bequests. This time, it was Carl who was the beneficiary. David McClellan. Towards the middle of the 1860s, the Marx family were blessed by two really quite important gifts of money. One was from Marx's mother, and the other was an old friend of his called Wilhelm Wolf. Both these legacies amounted to, and it's difficult to be precise about these sorts of sums, but sort of twenty, twenty-five thousand pounds each in today's money, possibly more in fact. This enabled them to move further north to Maitland Park into a really big, nice suburban house where the three girls could all have their bedroom, Mark could have a separate study, airy, garden in front, garden behind, really the sort of house that would sell for at least half a million pounds, if not more, these days. And it's partly these legacies which enabled them to move there, and partly the fact that Engels retired from his family firm in Manchester, Ehrman and Engels, or rather was bought out, and came to live in Regent's Park Road, quite near to Maitland Park in London, and was able to settle on Marx, a figure of, I think it was £350 a year, which Marx didn't actually manage to live on, he'd still need some more money, but anyway, he was comfortably off there. In this new setting, and with years of research at the British Museum under his belt, Marx was finally able to write the first volume of Capital, his great analysis and critique of the capitalist system, which was published in 1867. After moving to Maitland Park in 1864, Marx really didn't have any more serious financial difficulties, and therefore he was enabled to actually finish writing Capital, which was published in 1867. It's only really because while he was in Dean Street and was in Grafton Terrace, although he was working a lot in the British Library, he really didn't have the continuous time, I think, to get down to actually producing his magnum opus. And it was due to his moving to Maitland Park that he managed to do this. Marx never finished the subsequent volumes of Capital. These were edited and released by Engels in the years after Marx's death. The fact that he was unable to finish the subsequent volumes of Capital is often attributed to the fact that it took Marx a long time to produce anything, and that he continued to edit the first volume of the work for years after its initial release, in order to provide secondary editions. Yet Gareth Stedman Jones suggests that Marx's thinking was also entering a period of flux later in his life. One of the things that a lot of the descriptions of Marx rather underplay is how much his thought changed in the last 10 to 15 years of his life. When he tried to write Capital, he'd already discovered that there was a major problem about authenticating the vision of the world which he had presented in the Communist Manifesto. In that manifesto, of course, he had this sense of, he said, capitalism and commodities and world trade were battering down the frontiers uh, more effectively than gunboats and the rest of it. It was the steam power and the factory which was going to conquer the world. 
But what he discovered was that, apart from places where capitalism was, as it were, implanted by political force, the sense of just unstoppable capitalist expansion throughout the non-European parts of the world wasn't really happening. And so this meant he had to change the plans of capital. That was even before Volume 1 came out. When it did come out, well, because it was in German, of course, it didn't attract much immediate attention in France or England. There was a French translation in the 70s. The main people who are interested in it are Russians. And what he comes to the conclusion, particularly after the Commune, is that, although he doesn't admit it publicly, I think it's fairly certain that revolution in Western Europe, he doesn't think is on the cards anymore, or at least not in any immediate future. The French and Germans are going to be at each other's throats because of the Franco-Prussian War. And the English seem to be very much tied up in enthusiasms for liberalism or Beckenfieldism or whatever, and didn't show much signs of creating any militant party. So what, in a sense, he goes back to is he gets excited by the idea of a sort of prehistory. All along, he had thought that men, man, man with a capital M, as it were, was essentially a sociable and cooperative being, that competition was unnatural, and so all the social forms which were based on competition and private property were a historical phase which would be surpassed at some point. But the interesting thing, too, is that in his last years he gets much more interested in the world before capitalism came. Of course there was communism to begin with, and what a ghastly thing it was. He comes to the slightly surprising conclusion that Fourier was right, that uh, this is a marginal note, he writes, saying that private property and monogamy are responsible for the curses of civilization, which is not what one would associate with his earlier writings. He also becomes a strong believer that the Russian commune is viable, could survive, it might need some help from outside, but basically the thing now to do was to oppose capitalist incursions wherever they happen in the extra-European world. And he retreats, or they doesn't publicly admit it, from this idea of a global model of capitalism which all nations will have to go through. Instead, he sort of thinks of it much more as something which happens in a certain bit of Western Europe and something which other nations can avoid. And this comes out in a letter he writes when there's a group of Russian exiles in Geneva who write to him saying, is the peasant commune viable or not, or do we inevitably have to go through a capitalist phase? And the substance of the letters suggests that they could survive without going through a capitalist phase. But this is something, of course, which the Russians themselves, and uh, when they become Bolsheviks and so on, very much don't want to hear anymore. So this becomes something which had to be excavated, re-excavated, if you like, in, in the last 30 or 40 years. As Marx was continually reworking his theories, his health began to decline. He also suffered devastating personal losses. In 1881, his wife and companion of nearly 40 years, Jenny, fell seriously ill for several months, lying in bed with bronchitis before passing away in December that year. Two years later, their eldest daughter, also named Jenny, fell victim to internal pains and died of what was possibly bladder cancer. Marx himself was exhausted by these losses. After a period of visible decline, he developed bronchitis and suffered a hemorrhage on his lung, 
dying on the 14th of March, 1883. Here's David McClellan on these final years. He did suffer from a mini-stroke in the early 1870s, which slowed him down a bit, but not that much. But he continued producing things and revising capital until the day he died in March 1883. And that was where he died, at home, in Maitland Park, suffering from, I mean, it's not entirely clear, but pneumonia, I think. He just died, I mean, partly of exhaustion, partly of old age, partly of chest infection. Died peacefully in his armchair in his study and discovered by Eleanor, who then called Engels. Marx's intellectual legacy was enormous and too diverse to go into in any detail here. On a more individual, human level, however, Eleanor, Marx's youngest daughter, was an activist in her own right. A committed socialist and trade unionist, she campaigned for women's rights and internationalist causes and became much more directly involved in British political life than her father ever had. Rosemary Ashton. Here, it's worth mentioning that Marx's youngest daughter, Eleanor, who was born in London, kind of closed the gap or bridged the gap between the English socialist endeavor and her father's German philosophical political ideas. She, like her older sisters before her, helped him in the round reading room with his research. She acted as his amanuensis. She was intelligent and bright. Her early letters show her already having something of the marks analytical expertise and she became really a very important member of the British trade union movement, particularly the gas workers union which she became involved with. She was involved in the education of workers. She also thought of herself, interestingly, as English. We English, she described herself and her colleagues. She translated Madame Bovary from French. She was the first English translator of Madame Bovary. She translated Ibsen. She was a member of the Early English Text Society, of the Browning Society. She immersed herself in English culture and also in English political and trade union life. And so she became the figure, if you like, that her father couldn't have become because he was too busy thinking, cogitating in the British Museum round reading room, uh, working on Capital, and because also he couldn't really rub along with others, whereas Ellen was a past master at getting on with other people. Unfortunately, she fell in love in the wrong place and entered into a so-called marriage which was consummated but never actually regularised with a fraud, Edward Aveling, who worked with her in the Social Democratic Federation and then the Socialist League, but who cheated on her, married someone else while apparently married to her, and she she committed suicide at the age of, I think, 39 in 1898 because her personal life was not as happy and fulfilled as her public political life. We'll end the tour with a visit to the Marx family grave. Several bus routes connect the Maitland Park area with Highgate Cemetery, but the easiest way to get to the cemetery is probably by tube. So go back to Chalk Farm head south one stop to Camden Town, and then take a High Barnet or Mill Hill East train north to Archway. Once you've done that, you can use the instructions that I provided in the previous track to find the cemetery.